Good morning. So we're going to start today with a history lesson. I kind of love history and just finished a book recently by a biographer named Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow wrote a book um, um, on Alexander, Alexander Hamilton that Lin-Manuel uh, read that uh, gave him the inspiration for uh, the musical that's such a, uh, a huge sensation. Um, uh, Chernow is one of the great writers and biographers in the world today, and his most recent biography was on a figure that I wanted to learn more about. I knew very little about the Union general and former president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, because I find that stuff fascinating, because that's just kind of the dork that I am. But I'm owning that in front of all of you, and this will be on the internet. I'm owning my dorkiness. I love those kinds of books, and I'm comfortable with it. I'm okay with who I am, okay? I'm comfortable with this. That's the me I want to be, all right? <laughs> this is what happens in the fourth sermon. You're like, yeah, whatever. So anyway, uh, in this biography, uh, Chernow talks about uh, Grant and about how desperate things were in the Civil War when Grant was promoted to being the commanding general of all the Union forces for the North. See, the battle had started in 1861, and North, on paper, had an easy path to victory, and they thought they were going to win really easily in a matter of weeks, because what was going to happen is they had more troops in the South, they had more industry in the North than the South did, and therefore they had more weapons and better weapons. And so they thought that this was going to be a very, very easy conflict. And then what happened is they ran into the Army of Northern Virginia that was commanded by Robert E. Lee. And they lost almost every major engagement in the East from 1861 and in 1862 and in 1863. And by the close of 1863, it became fairly apparent that the South was going to win the war. And the way they were going to win was that in 1864, this very unpopular president, Abraham Lincoln, who had, was up for re-election, and he was going to lose in re-election. And his opponents were running on a platform of a negotiated peace with the South. The war would end. And what would uh, continue on in that, in this very divided nation, would be what was called their peculiar institution of slavery. So Abraham Lincoln, facing his own defeat at the beginning of 1864, promoted a general from the Western Theater, his only general who had received uh, much success, Ulysses S. Grant, to being commander of all Union forces. Now, Grant immediately was different than the many Union generals who had gone before him, who were like a revolving door, losing and losing and losing with different individuals. And one of the things that they talked about with Grant that made him so different was that in the middle of battle, when everyone would start to get more and more frantic, he would get more and more calm. This calm that, as one of his officers said, was like a divine gift of God that was given to him, that when everyone else was freaking out, and especially when the North started believing in every battle it was going to lose, what started happening is they would have like one conflict, and when it started to go bad, by the time Grant took over, they were all like, well, we're going to lose again, because they just got so accustomed to losing. And Grant had this calm when everyone else was getting all worked up and scared. And it had two effects. The first is, is that the other officers started saying it started calming us down when everybody else was getting more and more frantic. But the other thing that it did is it allowed Grant, in his own words, to not get some divine gift from God. As he described it, what he would do in those moments is that he would start to think very deeply and very critically about some 
important concepts. He had built some habits in his life of how he led in battle, and he would go there in his mind. Here's what Grant did. Grant would prepare for a battle by going with his officers with maps of the battlefield. And the battlefield, when you think about these wars, they were tens of thousands of men uh, stretched over miles and miles of terrain. These were massive armies fighting. And so what would happen is Grant would go out and spend days riding the battlefield where they knew they were going to fight with his officers. He would have existing maps, but he would start learning the terrain, and he would start to make and draw maps himself. And then at night in his tent, he would memorize these maps. He would spend hours pouring through these maps so that he and his mind could visualize every inch of the battle. And then what would happen is often one of the, 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 the generals would start the fighting, okay? And the way that the fighting would start is often that the battles in the Civil War would start early in the morning. Because what would happen is, is that at night, the night before the battle, uh, the general of the side that was going to attack would have their men all stretched out over these miles of, uh, of battle lines, and then they would take them, and at night when the enemy couldn't see, they'd position them in a new way. They would like maybe load up their soldiers on this side. And then when Robert E. Lee would attack, he would attack, and all of these men had been concentrated on this area. The North didn't know what had happened, and they would try to take this one area of the Northern line, and then when it crumbled, the rest of the line would start to go. That's how they would win again and again and again. So what Grant would do is he would memorize these maps, and then when Robert E. Lee would attack, Grant would do two things. The first is what every other general would do. He would sit there and say, okay, well, if he's attacking here, then we need to fortify and shore up our defenses there. But the second thing he would do is in those moments of calm, he would picture the line. And he would ask himself a question. The question was, is that if Lee has massed his troops here, what that means is he's taken them from somewhere else. And he would learn the map and he would start going, now where are the most likely locations that he's weakest right now? And then he would order two things. One is to shore up his defenses here, but the second is to attack in those areas where he thought that the Confederates in his learning of their soldiers and of the topography of the terrain would be weakest. Grant became what was known in military languages as a great counterpuncher, meaning that Lee would punch with attacking one place and Grant would counterpunch in a different area. And those moments of calm, he said, were not God-given moments. They were where I would go into my brain with what I had studied to see the map and think, how can we fight back? And so when people talk about, and Chernow makes this point, when they talk about Ulysses Grant, yes, he was the general who won, and yes, they had more troops, and yes, they had more industry, but so had all of the Union generals who had come before him, all of whom had lost. Chernow makes the point that what allowed the Union to start winning, what allowed Abraham Lincoln to get reelected, what allowed the 13th Amendment to be passed and slavery to be abolished might in many ways come down to one individual's ability to focus their mind when other people could not. That's what we're going to be talking about today. What we're going to be talking about in this series, this third week of Lent, is how God has given us one of the most powerful tools that we can use. And it's going to lead us in one of many different directions. And that is the tool of our mind. How do we think? 
How do we see this world? How do we understand who God is and what God's doing? How do we come to discern the will of God? How is our mind an essential part of figuring out the me that we're called to be? Okay? The scripture passage that's going to guide us today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I invite you to just read silently, listen to, and soak in God's word to us today. This is what Paul writes to the Romans. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that no matter who we are, no matter how we walk in here, that we would hear directly from you today. And that you would lead us, that our lives might look different, that we might come more fully alive each and every day, each and every moment. We become more and more of the me that I want to be. Help us to engage with our minds how our minds are an essential part of all that we are and all that we'll become. We pray for you to speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, what Paul is saying in these two verses is in alignment with the illustration of Grant. It's in alignment with what science teaches us about how the mind works. What Paul is saying is that to move towards transformation, for God to shape and change our lives, for us to have lives of more joy, of more purpose, of more peace, that how we use our minds is an essential component in how we start to live differently. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, not of your feelings, but of the renewing of your minds. Science teaches us the power of the mind. It says to us that the power of our mind and how we develop our thoughts actually can determine our emotional health. It can determine a lot about our physical health even. It can determine how we see this world and how we interact with it, how we see opportunities or how we don't, how we see uh, uh, possibilities or how we just see closed doors, that the mind and how we use it can be one of the most powerful things that any of us will ever encounter. And he's saying here, this is how you know what God wants. This is how you discern the will of God. What is good? What is right? What is perfect? is the renewing of your minds. Now, there are a couple of things you need to know about this. The first thing that you need to know is that the way Paul writes these verses is that he's saying something to us that we need to hear. And what he's saying to us is that God is the one who does the transforming in our life, but you need to be an active participant in that. That the renewing of our minds is not about sitting back and just going, okay, God, I, you just start doing it. I'm just here. Whenever you're ready to start renewing my mind, I'm ready. Just do your thing and I'll do my sitting here and waiting. Now, what he's writing in these verses, he's saying, this is something that you are called to engage in. You need to activate. You need to initiate certain things. And the second thing that he's saying here, and the way that he writes this is so important, is that this, this phrase that we're focusing on, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, is written in a very particular way in the Greek, the original language he wrote this. And the way he wrote this verb, renewing, is that he's writing it and saying, this is a continuous action. This is going to be the rest of your life. This is what we in the church call sanctification. 
So it's not that you sit there and go, well, has that happened to me yet? I don't know. I don't know if my mind's been renewed. I feel like it's renewed some days. Other days, I definitely feel like I'm not renewed. Uh, so I don't know. Does this count or not? He's not talking about a one-time experience where we sit there and go, has your mind been renewed? Has your mind been renewed? Yes, it has. Okay, check that box. Move on to something else. The way he writes this is important. He's saying that this is something that you are called to engage in every day of your lives. You're to have an active part in this, but you're also called to know that this happens every day of your life. So how do we do that? How do we start? That's where I want us to, 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 to sit for a minute. So if we're supposed to do something here, what are we supposed to do? How do we renew our minds? And if we think about our minds, it feels like the natural places, so we need to start thinking differently, right? Okay, so, the, uh, so renewing my mind means I need to start thinking better thoughts. I like this section on Ortberg. If you've read section three, his wording is not actually my favorite here, because at one point he talks about, you know, how do you start thinking better thoughts? And I think the examples he give uh, are, are good, but I think that title isn't very great. Because if I just sit here today with you and go, okay, so you need to engage in the renewing of your mind, so start thinking good things. Don't think bad things. Don't think about bad things. You think about good things because you need to be about renewing your mind. What are we all going to do? We're going to start thinking about things, right? Good things, and then we're going to think about bad things. And we're going to sit there and go, okay, so I don't want to think about this. I need to think about this. But now that he's mentioned, now I'm thinking about this because I don't want to think about it. And so it's there. It's in my head. And it wasn't here when I walked into worship, pastor. So you have actually are the author of the bad things I'm not supposed to be thinking about that are now in my brain that I wasn't thinking about before, but you told me not to think about it. And because you told me not to think about it, now I'm thinking about it. And if I'm thinking about it, imagine what the other people in here are thinking about, right? Imagine what Thomas is thinking about. Because if I'm thinking this, then you must be thinking things through. Oh my gosh, you're thinking things up there on stage that you're not supposed to be thinking about. We need to go to a different church. Because if the person up front is thinking about what I think you're thinking about, then we are out the door. Our minds don't change because we sit there and go, I will now change my mind. It's not about strategy. It's not even about thoughts. But that how we begin engaging in the process of renewing our minds is about habits. Renewing our minds is not about thinking better thoughts so much as it's about building better habits. I'm going to say that again. The renewing of our minds is not so much about thinking better thoughts as it's about building better habits. Todd Bolsinger is a pastor and an author. He was here a couple of years ago. He had published a book on leadership called Canoeing the Mountains. Uh, Some of you may remember when he was here with us. And he has a quote in that book that I love. He says, you can think as a person, as a family, as a couple in your marriage, as a church, as an institution. He said, you can think all the thoughts you want about what you want to do differently. I'm going to do this. I used to give into this sin. I've struggled with it, but now I mean it. I'm going to change. I'm going to, I'm going to think about other things. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, have that lead me in a different direction. We as a church, our company, we got a strategic plan now. And as long as we got a strategic plan, that means we've thought the right things before we're going to go in the right directions. And Todd Bolsinger writes that habits eat strategy for breakfast. 
Habits eat strategy for breakfast. You can have all the strategy and thoughts you want. The question of how our actions change is not if we've thought the right thoughts, it's about have we built the right habits. And that's what Lent at some core level is about. That's what we're inviting you to do in these six weeks. It's not about thinking better thoughts, it's about building better habits. As John Wasson preached on Ash Wednesday, he said that the point of Lent is that we are to build new habits, that we are to learn to say no to certain things in order to say yes to better things. So some of us do things at Lent, like we give up certain things. Maybe you've given something up for Lent. Maybe, and I hope you've done this, not only have you given something up, maybe you've taken something up. Because the goal of Lent is not to give up something and then go, okay, can I make it all six weeks and hold my breath and see if I can do it? And then on Easter, it's like, okay, good, I can do it again, I made it. That's not the goal. The goal is to start building habits that when you come to the end of Lent, you're like, I don't want that to end because I've actually learned to say yes. I built better habits to say yes to better things than I was saying yes to before. This is a time not of thought. Lent is a time of action. It's a time where we reflect, yes, but we repent. We move in a new direction. How you are called to renew your mind is not about thinking better thoughts. It's about building better habits. And the habits we build where God says he'll engage us is not something we have to, like, come up with something new. The job of the church isn't to go, I don't know, what habits do we want to do this year? The habits are timeless. And our job as a church is we're in Lent or in any season of the year. Our job at Covenant is to build really clear on-ramps into those habits. How do we begin practicing? What are the right habits? And how do we begin practicing in them for the renewal of our minds? So this year at Lent, there's been three things that we've invited you to consider doing. And maybe you're doing things on your own. And if you are and it's working, keep doing it. These aren't the only three things, but these are three things that are really clear in Scripture that we're called to do. And I want to ask you, as you think about this morning, we're halfway through Lent, basically. How are you doing at the things you said you were going to do? For some of you, you might be going, I'm doing really well. I'm saying yes to new things. I'm trying some new stuff, and I feel the Lord in it. I feel like I'm coming alive. It's not a chore anymore. I'm really enjoying this. Probably there might be a few of you, I'm like, how are you doing at your Lenten practices? You'd be going, ah, right? It's like a New Year's resolution. I really mean it at the beginning of the year. And two weeks later, you're like, yeah, right? This year at Lent, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm not going to do this thing. And then it's like you get two weeks in, three weeks in, and you're like, well, it's like some days. You know, it's going okay. See if I can make it to the end. It's not the right spirit. I want to encourage you today for the things that you are doing and you're finding life and keep doing it. But if you are doing things that don't make sense or you haven't started anything yet, it's not too late to start. There's nothing magical about Lent that says you can either start on day one or you just don't do it at all. God's not sitting there going, sorry, not interested in interacting with you anymore. You didn't start on Ash Wednesday. So this is a time where you can reconsider. You could shift and maybe try something different. You could incorporate something new. But the three things we've invited you to consider are the following. And maybe some of you want to engage in some of these. The first thing that we've invited you to consider is how in solitude... You connect with the Lord. How do you do that? And one of the ways among many that we're offering that is that we're in the midst of having on a regular basis here at Covenant silent retreats. Silent retreats that you can go on. The next one's coming up. It's in Lent. It's Saturday, March 17th. That You can go for half a day to a place that's about an hour from here and be taught and guided in how to practice silence for a couple of hours and to pray and interact with the Lord. You can sign up to this. You can go. 
I've heard from many people who have tried this out. I myself have been there, and the story usually works the same way. When you sign up and go, there's a piece of you on the day going, I have no idea how to do this. I'm going to fail. I can't be silent for two hours. Um, I, this is just not going to make sense. Everyone will know I'm a spiritual failure. Though My bankrupt spiritual self will be on display for everyone to see, because everyone else will have this amazing spiritual experience, and I'll be watching my clock going, when is this over? And I've talked to many people who have gone and experienced this, and at the end, they have a variety of experiences, but I've never, ever heard anyone who tried it who at the end said, yeah, I just wish I hadn't done it. I wish I had just stayed home and watched a game. I wish I had just kind of done something different. It's a practice of solitude that you can engage in. There's opportunities to do that, to learn how you can interact with God, to build the habits of solitude and prayer, not just on a once every now and again basis, but on a continuous process in your life. But this is where we start building those habits. You can take the idea, secondly, of community. We've invited into practice of solitude. We've invited into practices of community. We're reading this book by John Ortberg, The Me I Want to Be. If you haven't picked it up yet, it's not that you can't start now. You can go get it. You can start. You can start reading from the beginning. It's not that hard of a read. You can start in chapter, uh, in section three, where we are this week, and you can start reading. You can do that now. You can find somebody, because our Linton small groups are full, you could find somebody uh, in this church. You could find someone outside of this church and just say, would you read it with me? So that we can meet and discuss it, talk about it. For those of you who are in small groups, that you're following this, there are opportunities for you to build habits and how you do it, to not be too busy, to not schedule a meeting when you guys are going to meet, to protect that time to go again and again and again. And when you are there, fully entering to the process. Not just talking about the questions and how they're raised, but at the end of every small group time, you will be asked, how can this group pray for you? And you can choose every week whether to tell the truth of that or not. You can decide if you're going to actually tell them what your fears are, what your temptations are, what your dreams are, what your hopes are, and allow people to pray with you in that moment, or you can build the habit of lying and just going, just pray for me at work, I'm stressed. That means nothing. It means nothing. But we say it over and over again. People are like, hmm, okay, yeah, I understand. It doesn't mean anything. (laughs) You get to choose to tell the truth or not. And you don't do that once. It's a habit you build again and again and again. It can be the most scary thing you do, but I promise you when you start practicing, it'll be one of the most liberating and life-giving. So prayer, solitude, community, engagement with this particular book. And last and thirdly, and Ortberg talks about this in this section, we build the habit of renewing our minds through the engagement with Scripture. The regular reading of scripture. I shared with you all in the first week what my Lenten practice is this year is trying to think deliberately about how I spend time on my phone. Because I can spend way too much time on ESPN than a a human being needs to spend. I can spend way too much time on news sources and get all worked up about what's taking place. I want to be informed, but I don't need to spend hours looking at this stuff and then ranting and raving to somebody else who, A, doesn't really care about my ranting and raving, and B, neither of us is going to do much to change it that day and getting all worked up about it. And so instead of that, I've tried to spend more time signing up for our daily devotions and every and five days a week getting those coming to my inbox and reading the scriptures. And I personally am reading a psalm every day, the psalm of the day. Not for sermon prep, not to teach a Bible study, but just to hear the word of God. And Ortberg says for many Christians, that is just something we don't do. He says the reason many of us don't read the Bible is because we approach it the wrong way. We approach it through rules. We approach it either through like, I've got to read the Bible because that's God's rule. 
and so therefore I better do it. I'm going to check my box every day of reading the Bible. He says, or secondly, we read the Bible to learn more rules. He says both of those are things that will just stop the life in you. He said the Bible's not a rule book that you learn. The Bible at its core is a love letter from God to you and to all of creation. I was reminded as I read that this week of a story last year, one year ago at Lent, of a young couple. And this young couple uh, both took up Lenten practices, said no to some things in order to say yes to better things. The wife took up the practice for the first time in her life of reading the Bible on a daily basis. The husband took up the practice of trying to appear like he was engaging in Lent and in faith enough to get his wife off of his back. And for the first two weeks of Lent, everything kind of seemed to work okay. Until one day, the wife came home from work sick, and she developed the flu. Now, he, was, he loves her, and he was trying to do the right thing, and so he took some time off of work as well, and he worked from home a little bit, and he started to try to care for her, to serve her well. He said he started, like, you know, trying to fake, fix uh, food when she wanted it. He tried to make sure that the TV remote control batteries were working. He tried to just do the things that you do to care for someone who's really feeling bad. And one day, as she had finished some soup, he looked at her and said, is there anything else you need? And she said, uh, yeah, I actually, the last two days since I've been sick, I haven't read the Bible, which I said I was going to do. Could you get me my Bible? He said, sure, I think I know what it looks like. And uh, uh, he went and he looked around and finally he found it. And then he walked in uh, to her room and she said, I can't even, my head hurts so bad I can't focus. You guys have the flu. Like, I can't focus on the words. Would you just read the passage to me today? He goes, I don't know that I've ever felt more awkward in my life. He goes, I don't read the Bible by myself, much less stand in a bedroom and read it out loud to someone who's lying in bed. He goes, I felt so unbelievably awkward, but I read it and I kind of looked at her, I'm like, so is there anything else I need to do? And she's like, that was just great, thank you. The next day, she asked him to do it again. The next day, she asked him to do it again. The next day, as she started feeling better, they kept doing it together. And this year at Lent, a year later, he says that every day that we're both in town together, we spend a few minutes at night, not a long time, but just a few minutes, one of us will read the scripture out loud to the other. He said, it started as a practice that I did to show her that I love her. We now do it every day to remind one another of how much God loves us. And that kind of renewing of the mind is not something you just read one time and accept. You need to hear it again and again and again and again and again. I hear from people all the time, and I feel it a lot of the time myself. I don't know where God is. It's mysterious. What does God want? I can't discern it. I can't feel it. And what the Lord is saying to us is that you can have your mind renewed. You can hear my voice, not by thinking better thoughts, but by building in the right habits. And the habits aren't mysterious. You just have to make the decision to pursue them, not as a rule, not as a chore, but that you might know what is good and right and perfect about your how you are called to live. This day, this week, this Lenten season, may I encourage you to follow Jesus, to build these habits, to be deliberate. That the joy of the Lord might be yours. Amen? Amen? Amen. As we come to this table today, would you join me in prayer? Lord, we ask this day that you would meet us in this habit that we have here of once a month gathering at this table. May this habit cultivate in us and build in us 
our sense of who you are and fill us with joy at the truth that we proclaim in this place, in our broken world and in our broken lives and in our broken selves of just how adored by you we are. May this feast fill us to overflowing. May the, may the habit at this table be a sacred act where we take you inside of us and seek to follow you and to witness to your love and your grace every day of our lives. We pray for this, this building up of each of us in our lives, this morning and always. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.